Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Hegel, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally, they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then... She can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because, you know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Listener, 
Today's story takes us across the pond and back in time to 1970s Scotland. During this time, the historic capital city of Edinburgh, located in the east of the country, off the coast of Firth of Forth Estuary, was quaint and old-fashioned. Pubs closed at 11 p.m., but with a population of just over 490,000 people, business was booming thanks to the younger population who enjoyed hitting the town on a weekend to sample all the city's nightlife had to offer. The hub of Edinburgh's social scene after dark was an area known as the Royal Mile, named for the two prominent buildings at each end of the cobbled thoroughfare, which runs through the heart of what today is known as Edinburgh's Old Town. Narrow alleyways, known as closes, trail off each side of the Royal Mile, lending a certain charm to the layout of the area, and offering many opportunities for exploring the ancient enclaves of the city. Bookended by Edinburgh Castle at one end, and Holyrood Palace at the other, Today the Royal Mile is a pedestrianized street, dotted with souvenir shops catering to the thousands of tourists who visit the city. Pubs remain a huge drawcard for locals and backpackers alike, but purveyors of tartans, local artisan jewelry, Celtic trinkets, and the national tipple of whiskey enjoy a brisk trade. The modern design of the Scottish Parliament building provides a quirky, and some say controversial, Architectural juxtaposition to the glorious stained glass windows of St. Giles Cathedral, which dates back to the 14th century. But in the late 1970s, the Royal Mile was a popular night spot for the young people of Edinburgh, who frequented the many pubs in the area, going from pub to pub, seeing who was out and about, and enjoying a few drinks at each stop along the way. One such establishment was the World's End Pub, situated halfway down the main thoroughfare, Dating back to the 16th century when Edinburgh was a walled city, the pub's exterior wall formed part of the ancient fortifications, which protected the old town section of the city from outside threats. The site on which the pub stood was geographically the last frontier of Edinburgh, with the gates to the city formerly situated literally outside the location of the pub itself. It was also in the late 1970s that over the southern border in England, the man in the media dubbed the Yorkshire Ripper was terrorizing the northeast of the country. Unsuspecting women were not only being violently assaulted in public with frightening frequency, but were also going missing, only to later be found murdered. By late 1977, some women had survived to tell the tale, but six victims had all turned up dead in similar circumstances. The horrific nature of the attacks brought an unprecedented level of fear to the residents of West Yorkshire, as well as an overwhelming amount of pressure for police to apprehend the man responsible. When Scottish citizens turned on their televisions or opened their newspapers to be greeted by sordid details of the latest attack, they breathed a sigh of relief. Nothing like that ever happened in Scotland. Women were safe to walk the streets at night, be it alone or with their girlfriends. They certainly wouldn't have felt so unsafe as to reconsider hitching a ride home with a man they'd met at a pub only less than an hour before. It was cheaper than a taxi, and besides, no one would have felt there was any reason to second-guess the kindness of strangers. Hitching a ride was something everyone did. It was proof that everyone was looking out for the safety and welfare of others. That is, until they weren't. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. Out on the Skite
Christine Eady and her friend Helen Scott had known each other since childhood. Growing up and attending school together in the Furl area of Edinburgh, both 17 years old, they just started their working lives, with Christine employed as a typist for a firm of surveyors. Those who knew her described Christine as popular, vivacious, and likable, and someone who was dearly loved by her family. In 1977, she was starting to make her own way in the world, having moved into a flat after growing up in the care of her grandmother. Christine had a large social circle and enjoyed attending parties with her many friends and acquaintances. Like many teenage girls at the time, Christine's friend Helen left school at age 15. By late 1977, she had a job working at a kilt shop in a busy shopping area of Edinburgh, but she loved spending time with children and her ultimate goal was to work in child care. Helen was extremely close to her family, who described her as shy and caring, but someone who loved to laugh. A bit of a tomboy and an animal lover, Helen was devoted to her family's dogs. She didn't go out often on the weekends, but when she did, she always enjoyed socializing with her friends and catching up on the latest news in their world. Both girls loved music, with Christine a diehard fan of the Osmonds, while Helen enjoyed listening to David Cassidy. After finishing work for the day on October 15, 1977, Helen was looking forward to heading out for the evening to the Royal Mile area of Edinburgh. She would be catching up with Christine and their other girlfriends, Jacqueline and Tony, to see who was out on the town that night. Like many young people in Edinburgh, the foursome planned to go on a pub crawl and let their hair down. The Scotsman newspaper reported that at around 6 p.m., Helen and Jacqueline met in Princess Street, where Helen worked, then walked to the Mount Royal Hotel nearby. At around 8 p.m., they met up with flatmates Christine and Tony at the Grosvenor Hotel. The book The World's End Murders by Tom Wood and David Johnston explains how at one stage during the evening, Christine and Helen had a disagreement but this was soon smoothed over, and the group continued on with their evening without any significant disruption. The group's last stop for the night was one of the many popular pubs in the area, The World's End. Part of the thrill of going to numerous licensed venues in one night for a group of teens was to see whether they would actually be served alcohol while being under the legal drinking age of 18. When the group arrived at the pub just before 10 p.m., the venue was shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with revelers, but in a stroke of luck, the girls managed to find seats near the payphone. After a short while and a couple more drinks, Tony and Jacqueline headed off to the bathroom, but when they returned, Helen and Christine had been joined at the table by two men the other girls didn't recognize. Tony and Jacqueline told Helen and Christine that they'd run into a friend at the pub, who invited everyone to a party in Portobello and asked if they wanted to come along. Tony and Jacqueline wanted to continue on to the party, but as Helen was so tired, she and Christine decided to call it a night and head home. Tony and Jacqueline left, and Helen and Christine were seen again, talking to the two men who'd struck up a conversation with them earlier. After chatting for another 25 minutes, Helen and Christine left at closing time were seen outside the pub at around 11 p.m. with the unidentified men. When Helen didn't return home later that night, her parents were immediately worried. She didn't really go out much on the weekends, and if she did, she certainly wasn't out late. 
The next morning, with Helen still not at home, her anxious parents called her friend Jacqueline in the vain hope she'd stayed the night at her place. But she hadn't. And Jacqueline found the phone call from Helen's father troubling. She decided to call around to Christine's flat to see if the girls had ended up there. But nobody answered the door. In their desperation, Helen's family drove the car to the Royal Mile to meet up with Jacqueline and others who had seen Helen and Christine out the previous evening. To not even have received a phone call from Helen was completely out of character, and her parents soon reported her missing to the police. Part 2. Something Wicked This Way Comes As the minutes ticked by, Helen's panicked parents began to fear the worst. There was still no sign of her by the time a newsflash on the radio announced that the bodies of two girls had been found near Aberlady in Haddington, two towns about a 40-minute drive east of Edinburgh. Christine's naked body was discovered on the foreshore at Gosford Bay in East Lothian early that afternoon by a couple who were out walking. She was laying on her back, her hands tied behind her, using one leg of her tights secured with a reef knot. Unlike other knots, a reef knot can be tied and tightened with both ends. It is not a simple configuration, and indicated that whoever was responsible perhaps had a naval, fishing, or scouting background. BBC Scotland reported that Christine's underwear had been stuffed into her mouth and was held in place by her bra, which was wrapped around her head. The other leg of her tights was tied around her neck. Christine's body also showed signs of having been beaten and raped, in addition to a human bite mark on her arm. The coat with a faux fur collar and the blue denim jumpsuit she'd been wearing the previous night were both missing. Helen's body was found around 6 p.m. that evening, lying face down in a wheat field at Coates Farm by a local man walking his dog. This location was six miles from where Christine's body had been discovered, and Helen was naked from the waist down. She was also barefoot, the soles of her feet stained with mud. But unlike Christine, she was still wearing her top. Her new long black coat, which she'd purchased only days before, was thrown haphazardly across her body. However, her clogs, jeans, and leather satchel were nowhere to be found. Helen's belt had been used to tie her hands behind her back. She had a mark on her face that was determined to be a shoe print. The print of the shoe was also found to match a footprint at the scene where Christine's body had been found. Helen's underwear was found lying near her head, with detectives concluding that it had originally been stuffed in her mouth. It was used as a gag, but she'd managed to spit it out. Helen had also been raped, and the belt from Christine's jumpsuit was tied around Helen's neck. Unlike Christine, a granny knot was used to bind Helen's hands. This was less complicated than a reef knot, and a detail that didn't go unnoticed by police, who also observed that both girls' bodies had been dumped out in the open by whoever had killed them. Despite an extensive search of the surrounding areas for the girls' belongings and other clothing, nothing was found. The girls' blood alcohol levels revealed that Christine had been killed, first followed by Helen, who had most likely been walked and not carried or dragged to the spot where she was later found. Speaking days after his daughter's body was found, 
Helen's father said, I can't put it into words, the heartbreak we have gone through. My girl went off to work as happy as a lark on Saturday morning. I still can't believe that it's my little girl. Jacqueline told the police that before she left the pub, she saw Christine and Helen deeply engrossed in conversation with two men who appeared to be in their mid-twenties. One of the men looked about 5 feet 7 inches in height with fair hair, while the other man had darker features. Jacqueline didn't recognize the men, who both seemed to exude an air of standoffishness, may have been from out of town. Other witnesses who had seen Christine and Helen at the pub that night corroborated reports that the girls had been in the company of two men. One of the men was said to have a solid build, a very short haircut, was wearing trousers with patches on the pockets. The other man was reported to have a thick, dark mustache. Police officer who was on patrol in the Royal Mile area that night saw the girls leave the pub at closing time. As the girls stepped out onto the footpath, Christine lost her footing and fell. The officer rushed to help Christine to her feet, but as he did so, he noticed a man standing near the door of the pub who was staring at him. The officer told investigators that the man came over and offered to drive the girls wherever they wanted to go. The officer last saw Christine and Helen walk off with the two men down St. Mary Street. Every available police resource was allocated to the case, which involved the mammoth task of interviewing everyone who had been at the World's End pub that evening. The priority for detectives was to track down the two men who were seen with Helen and Christine when they left the pub. Up to 60 officers worked tirelessly to pursue every lead and piece of information that came in from the public. But on several occasions, this proved frustrating and led to dead ends. In a major and unfortunate coincidence, two other girls were also spotted in the pub that evening, who just happened to bear more than a passing resemblance to Helen and Christine. Police received information from many eyewitnesses who were adamant they'd seen Helen and Christine, but had in fact seen the other two girls, who had not gone missing, but were safe and well. In another instance of a red herring, Glasgow organized crime figures Arthur Thompson and his son came to the attention of police as possible suspects, but this potential lead was also eliminated when it was revealed that Thompson's underworld enemies had deliberately provided false information to police. Around 200 patrons had frequented the World's End that evening, and many of them knew Christine and Helen on site. But the challenge in canvassing all potential witnesses was that the patrons were always a mix of locals and people from out of town, not to mention overseas tourists. Some settled in for the night, while others may have only had one drink, or indeed, come in to see if friends were there and left soon after without having a drink at all. BBC Scotland reported that one witness who had been at the pub, told police that one of the men seen with the girls had spoken earlier in the evening about having an army background. When police inquired about the suspicious vehicles in the area, another witness reported seeing a van parked outside the pub on the evening in question. The same witness also saw a similar van parked outside a phone box in the village of Drem, a 45-minute drive east of Edinburgh, and which happened to be a 10-minute drive from where Helen's body had been found. By late 1977, Lothian and Borders Police had compiled a list of over 500 potential suspects and taken over 13,000 statements from members of the public. Helen and Christine's male friends were quickly eliminated, 
as were known sex offenders who lived in the Royal Mile area. But despite their best efforts and Scottish news media being saturated with coverage of the case, including an identikit picture of a potential suspect, police were unable to identify the person responsible. The image of the girls etched in the mind of the public was a picture they'd taken in a phone booth, which police used to publicize the case in their widespread appeal for information. At the time, the media reported that witnesses who were at the pub on the night in question had told police they saw Helen and Christine sitting near the public telephone in the pub, talking with two men. Neither of the men had yet come forward, nor had they been tracked down during the course of police inquiries. This did nothing to reassure police that the men weren't responsible. In fact, the theory that two offenders were involved only gained traction after it was revealed that the knots used to tie the girls' hands behind their backs were vastly different. By May 1978, investigators were no closer to answers. Volumes of information had been collected both from the public contacting police and detectives who worked relentlessly around the clock relying on good old-fashioned police work. But so far, it all amounted to nothing. As the investigation wound down and police resources were relocated elsewhere, forensic evidence that had been gathered in the form of Helen and Christine's clothes were sealed and stored, in the hope that a breakthrough would be around the corner. But with no new leads, Lothian and Borders Police announced that the investigation would be scaled back. The murders were now a cold case. The first anniversary of Helen and Christine's murders came and went, with no new information or answers for their families. Then the second, then the third. It remained that way for the next 11 years until 1988, when authorities received information from a prisoner at Edinburgh Jail. The man told police that he overheard two inmates discussing the murders of Helen and Christine, with a level of detail that wasn't known to the public. The inmates were interviewed, but much to the frustration of police, both men had solid alibis for the murders that checked out thoroughly. Sadly for Helen's family, her mother Margaret passed away in 1989, not knowing who was responsible for cruelly snuffing out her daughter's life. Margaret's health started to decline from the day in October 1977, when she was told that her daughter wouldn't be coming home, and she was never the same again. The creation of a national DNA database in 1995 provided new hope for extracting evidence that could help identify a suspect. The following year, more complex testing protocols allowed for more detailed DNA extraction. The cold case unit of Lothian and Borders Police arranged for retesting of the semen stain on the lining of Helen's coat and compared the results to the database, but disappointingly, there was no meaningful database match. Rather than wait for further advances in forensics to conduct more extensive testing, police went back to the original investigation. They poured over the list of 500 potential suspects at the time, many of whom were not on the DNA database. Investigators made contact with each suspect one by one to request DNA swabs and worked their way through the list in a process of elimination. It was a time-consuming and painstaking exercise but it failed to yield a match. Despite the best of intentions, the man whose DNA investigators were searching for was not on the database, and he had not been swabbed. So, where was he? 
Forensics officers continue to chip away at the available evidence in an attempt to help them pinpoint the owner of the DNA. In 2000, in a fragile process, the knots in the tights that had been used to bind the girls were physically untied. The fibers inside the knots had virtually been frozen in time, uncompromised by the effect of light and air by virtue of being tied tightly. When these were tested, fibers which had been protected inside the knots revealed a mixture of combined DNA belonging to more than one person. This was an exciting development. Nothing of any further use could be extracted from the sample at the time, but forensic science technology was moving very quickly. Eventually, DNA profiles matching both Helen, Christine, and two men would be isolated from the knot fibers. Three years later, in October 2003, popular British TV show Crime Watch Broadcast had an episode on the unsolved murders of Christine and Helen that included a dramatized reconstruction of the girl's last known movements on the night of October 15, 1977. Thanks to this increased publicity about the case, police received 130 calls from members of the public who had previously not made contact. One of the people who called police was a man who had not come forward earlier in the original investigation. He told investigators that on the night of the murders, he was walking near Gosford Bay, the location where Christine's body was found the following day. The man stated that the same night, he saw a suspicious vehicle being driven erratically, which appeared to be a maintenance van. In late October 2003, the media reported that Lothian and Borders Police had engaged the Forensic Science Service in an attempt to determine the identity of the person whose DNA profile had so far failed to match precisely with any held on the national database. Investigators had their work cut out for them, as the samples had already been partially matched over 200 profiles in the database, but they persisted. In 2004, a formal review conducted by Strathclyde and Lothian and Borders Police of the murders of Helen and Christine was launched. Named Operation Trinity, the review was led by a former deputy chief constable who announced that there was a pretty compelling case that the person or persons responsible for murdering Helen and Christine had more than two victims. In conjunction with the review and input from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, forensic pathologists from the University of Glasgow analyzed over 1,000 murders that had occurred in Scotland between 1968 and 2004. What they found were similarities between Helen and Christine's murders and four other unsolved murders in Glasgow, which from then on became a focus of Operation Trinity. The murders in questions had all occurred between June and December of 1977. 37-year-old bakery worker Frances Barker disappeared outside her home in the early hours of June 11th after getting a taxi home from Mary Hill Road. Frances's niece was the last person to see her when she got into the taxi. When her body was discovered, it was slightly concealed by three branches in a wooded area of Glenboig, 16 days after she disappeared. Frances's underwear was stuffed into her mouth. She had been strangled with her tights that were still tied around her neck. As improbable as it seemed, Frances had been intercepted between leaving in the taxi and arriving near her front door. 20-year-old brewery worker Anna Kenny disappeared on August 5, 1977, after leaving the hurdy-gurdy bar in Glasgow. Anna had been out with a female friend, and during the night, the pair were seen talking to two men. 
Anna left the bar with one of the men, who later told police that she left them to catch a taxi home. 20 months after she disappeared, her remains were found in a shallow grave near the village of Skipness, almost a three-hour drive from Glasgow. Her ankles were bound, and she had been viciously beaten, raped, and strangled. Her shoes, handbags, and coat were also missing. 36-year-old divorcee, devoted mother of two, and part-time cleaner Hilda McCauley was last seen on October 1, 1977, leaving the plaza ballroom in the company of a well-dressed man. Her half-naked body, which was concealed by bushes, was found the next day by children berry-picking near a lover's lane at Lang Bank, near the MA Motorway, 25-minute drive northwest of Glasgow. Hilda had been raped and beaten. Her coat, handbag, and shoes were also missing. 23-year-old trainee pediatric nurse Agnes Cooney disappeared on December 2, 1977, following a visit to the Clada Social Club with a female friend. Agnes had been out flat hunting that day with the same friend, and the pair decided to have a few drinks that evening to unwind before heading home. The eldest of five children, Agnes was reported to have left the club around midnight and walked four miles to a slip road on the M8 motorway, where she'd most likely planned to hitch a ride home to Cope Ridge. A usually reliable Agnes failed to turn up to work the next day, but two days later, her body was discovered by a farmer in a wooded area at Calda Crew, a 30-minute drive east of Glasgow. Despite fighting desperately for her life, Agnes had not survived the 26 stab wounds she had sustained. Like Helen and Christine, the murdered Glasgow women had failed to return home after a night out at the pub or going dancing. Their bodies were later found dumped in the countryside, some distance away from the venues they were last seen. They had all been sexually assaulted, and their hands and feet were bound. In what was described as a unique signature, the manner in which the women had been bound and gagged with ligatures made from their own clothing also included the use of different types of knots, indicating they had all been targeted by the same two attackers. Listener, as you've heard, DNA profiling didn't exist in 1977, but by the time Operation Trinity was reviewing Helen and Christine's murders in conjunction with the four cold cases in Glasgow, there had been significant technological developments in the field of forensic science. One thing police had retained from the original investigation into Helen and Christine's murders was the clothing the girls had been wearing the night they disappeared. Thanks to conscientious police work back in 1977, great pains had been taken to preserve and store the girls' clothing despite the investigation becoming a cold case. Even though forensic science did not evolve to what it has become today, the original investigators knew that it would only be a matter of time before the clothing would be found to hold the key to solving the case. Operation Trinity was in full swing when a new technique in DNA analysis was developed. Focusing on the comparison of Y chromosomes, in 2004, forensic officers ran this test against a section of semen staining on Helen's coat, which hadn't been tested previously. And this time, they hit the jackpot, finding not one, but two DNA profiles. The more dominant profile of the two belonged to the as-yet-unidentified man, but there were two distinct profiles nonetheless. And when the second, newer profile was run through the database, investigators hit paydirt. The DNA belonged to a man who was a serial predator of both women and children. 
and had been serving time in prison for violent sex offenses since 1982. Part 3. The Reprobate As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Angus Sinclair was born in 1945 and was the youngest of three children. Living in a tenement building, the Sinclairs were based in the working class, low-income St. George's Cross area of post-war Glasgow, which is Scotland's biggest city, located just over an hour's drive west of Edinburgh. Angus first came into contact with the criminal justice system in 1959, at age 13, when he stole an offertory box from a local church. Not long after, he also faced a charge of housebreaking, for which he received 12 months probation. Unpopular with his peers and sure for his age, Angus struggled academically. As a result, he left school in his mid-teens and found work loading and unloading goods from delivery vans. In 1961... 15-year-old Angus committed sexual offenses against an 8-year-old girl, finding himself again sentenced to probation. This time, for three years, Angus's behavior wasn't totally without consequence, though, and he lost his job as a result. Just seven months into his probation that same year, 16-year-old Angus pled guilty to culpable homicide, which is the Scottish equivalent of manslaughter. Angus was found to have lured his eight-year-old neighbor, Catherine Ree Hill, into his home in St. Peter Street in early July 1961. On the pretense of running an errand for him, Angus proceeded to beat, rape, and strangle Catherine with a bicycle inner tube before throwing her down a stairwell inside the tenement building. Angus then dragged Catherine, who was not dead but unconscious, out into the street, where she was soon discovered by two neighbors. BBC Scotland reported that Angus feigned ignorance and concern and responded to the neighbor's pleas for assistance by calling the ambulance, telling the dispatcher that a wee girl has fallen down the stairs. 
Tragically, Catherine could not be revived and died on the way to the hospital. Angus was charged the following day after his older brother convinced him to confess. Angus appeared remorseful and told Catherine's shocked and devastated mother that it had all been a dreadful accident. Following his confession, Angus pled guilty at court, where he was described as a very dangerous sexual case and a menace. A report by a psychiatrist who assessed Angus at the time noted, I do not think any form of psychotherapy is likely to benefit his condition, and he will constitute a danger from now on. He is obsessed by sex, and given the minimum of opportunity, he will repeat these offenses, irrespective of what promises he may give to the contrary. Angus's mother concurred that her son had become obsessed with sex and violence since reaching adolescence, but she stood by him, refusing to believe he could have been responsible for the horrendous crimes of which he was accused. The judge who heard the case described Angus as callous, cunning, and wicked, so obsessed with sex that he would not stop short of even taking a life to gratify his lust. Angus was convicted and sentenced to 10 years in prison, but in return for demonstrating compliant behavior during his incarceration, he was released after serving only six years. During his time in prison, Angus learned how to become a qualified commercial painter. The year following his release in 1967, the 23-year-old moved to Edinburgh for a fresh start. It was here that he met an 18-year-old trainee nurse, Sarah Hamilton. In 1970, the couple married in a civil ceremony, and two years later, they welcomed a baby boy, by which time the family had relocated back to Glasgow. Angus had been working steadily as a painter and decorator, decided to purchase an ice cream van to bring in extra money for his young family. Business was doing so well that Angus also bought himself a mini camper van, which he used for weekend fishing trips. But it wasn't long before Angus had his next brush with the law in 1980 when he received a six-month prison sentence for illegal possession of a 22 caliber revolver. However, this infraction was nothing compared to the charges Angus would face in June 1982. The 37-year-old serial predator pled guilty to three rapes and nine indecent assaults, which occurred between 1978 and 1982. The survivors were 11 Glasgow girls, aged from 6 to 14 years old. Angus's modus operandi was to lurk in stairwell landings or ask his unsuspecting prey to run an errand for him before grabbing them at knife point, viciously assaulting them. All the survivors noted that their attacker smelled like turpentine. One survivor identified Angus from a photo lineup, telling police that the man who assaulted her had dried flecks of paint in his hair. When police asked Angus how many girls and women he had assaulted over the years, he responded in a matter-of-fact tone that he couldn't hazard a guess, saying it could be anywhere from 50 to 500. Thankfully for the citizens of central Scotland, in response to Angus's guilty plea, he was sentenced to life in prison two months after his arrest. In the year 2000, when Angus was 18 years into serving his sentence, Strathclyde police were undertaking a review of the unsolved murder of 17-year-old machinist Mary Gallagher in Glasgow in November 1978. Mary had left her home in Springburn to visit a friend on the other side of the train line when she was accosted on a footpath near Barnhill Railway Station. A witness saw Angus dragging Mary into nearby bushes where she was sexually assaulted. When Mary's body was found, 
She was naked from the waist down. Her throat had been cut several times, and she had been strangled with the leg of her trousers, which had been left tied around her neck. Mary had not gone down without a fight, and reportedly managed to gouge Angus's eyes during the attack. In terms of a timeline, police could see that Mary had been murdered 13 months after Christine and Helen, just outside Edinburgh. When detectives retested the available DNA evidence from Mary's murder scene and ran it against the national database, they had a breakthrough. By the time of the review into Mary's unsolved murder, Angus and Claire's DNA had been stored on the database since the mid-1990s, when he voluntarily provided a sample to police. Angus had not been a suspect in the original investigation, but in 2000, semen found on a pubic hair recovered from Mary's body was a match to Angus. Despite this compelling evidence, Angus flatly denied any involvement in the crime, claimed that he and Mary had had consensual sex, but when he faced trial for Mary's murder in 2001, he was found guilty and received a second life sentence. Investigators with Operation Trinity, who in 2004 were reviewing the murders of Helen Scott, Christine Eady, and the four Glasgow murders, revised the reports of a suspicious van seen outside the World's End pub on the night of Christine and Helen's disappearance. Angus was found to have been driving a Toyota Hi-Ace camper van at the time that Helen and Christine had disappeared. Police pondered whether this was the same van that also matched the description of the vehicle seen outside the phone box in the village of Drem on the same night. As detectives started to form a broader picture of exactly who Angus Sinclair was, they discovered that during his first prison sentence, he learned to make fishing nets. In doing so, he developed the knowledge and skills to execute complicated knots, including ones like the reef knot found binding Christine's hands behind her back. Input from the FBI reported the theory held by Scottish detectives that Christine and Helen had been attacked by two men. Aside from behavioral indicators and forensic evidence, it made sense from a logical standpoint. It would be extremely difficult for one man, however strong, to subdue and maintain control of two teenage girls who would likely have been fighting for their lives. A scenario involving two men seemed far more plausible. The more police learned about Angus Sinclair's criminal profile, the more certain they were that they had their man. It was clear that Angus was more than likely one of the men who had viciously raped, beaten, and murdered two harmless teenagers out for the evening with their friends. Investigators turned to Angus's movements and known associates in the late 1970s, as they were still very much on the hunt for the man whose DNA had been found on Helen and Christine's clothing before Angus had even become a suspect. The owner of the other, more dominant DNA profile had remained a mystery for years, but it wouldn't be long before police would have another name. An investigation of Angus's friends and family revealed that in the late 1970s, he struck up a friendship with his wife's brother, whose name was Gordon Hamilton. Gordon and Angus had originally met when Gordon came to Edinburgh to visit his sister Sarah. Gordon was 10 years Angus's junior, and the two men started traveling on regular weekends away during the summer of 1977 in Angus's mini camper van to go fishing. If the pair had any luck catching fish, they'd clearly eaten them before they returned home, as they never seemed to bring any catch to speak of back with them. Unfortunately for Operation Trinity detectives in 2004, 
Gordon was unable to be interviewed or swabbed for DNA. He died nine years earlier in Glasgow, where he was living in a homeless shelter after suffering a heart attack as a result of an alcohol-related illness. Investigators hit another roadblock when they found they were unable to test Gordon's remains for DNA as he had been cremated. In an effort to confirm that it was indeed Gordon who was Angus Sinclair's accomplice, police went to extraordinary lengths to gather any possible traces of DNA that Gordon may have left behind anywhere before he died. First, they obtained DNA samples from Gordon's surviving relatives. Like Angus, Gordon had worked as a painter and decorator. Police tracked down the address of a house in Glasgow where Gordon had done work installing cornices to a ceiling. Police searched the house, and when they tested the surface of the cornices and ceiling, they found traces of Gordon's DNA on skin cells that had been left behind. When the sample was tested against the dominant DNA profile found on Helen Scott's coat in the late 1980s, it was an exact match. And a bittersweet twist for Helen and Christine Eady's families, the reason Angus hadn't been identified as a potential suspect earlier in the case was due to the fact that Gordon's DNA profile was the only one that had been extracted from the semen stain on Helen's coat. When Operation Trinity investigators looked for connections between Angus, Gordon, and the four unsolved murders in Glasgow, they found them, albeit circumstantial. Francis Barker lived on Maryhill Road, which was not far from where Angus had lived with his mother at the time Francis was murdered. The Daily Record newspaper reported that following Angus's purchase of his camper van, he had it registered to his mother's home address. Angus was also known to go fishing in Glenboig, where Francis's body was later found. The circumstances of Anna Kenny's disappearance also revealed a bizarre coincidence. The Edinburgh News reported that the friend who had been out with Anna the evening she disappeared and was the last person to see her alive would not long afterwards go on to marry Gordon Hamilton. In yet another revelation, it was discovered that Angus Sinclair worked around the corner from the Plaza Ballroom. At the time the Hilda McCulley was last seen leaving the popular night spot. However, there was a major factor working against the police. By the time the Glasgow murders were being reinvestigated in 2004, any forensic evidence which may have assisted the prosecution of these cold cases had either been lost or destroyed, to muddy the waters even further. In the case of Francis Barker, another man was already serving a life sentence for a murder, and the circumstantial evidence against him was compelling. Back in 1977, police found a makeup compact belonging to Francis at the convicted man's house. Investigators also recovered bleached hair similar to Francis's from the inside of the vehicle, that the man in question had been driving at the time Francis was murdered. And then there was the admission by the same man that he'd blacked out and then killed Francis. But Operation Trinity investigators noticed a significant anomaly. Three of the four Glasgow victims disappeared after the man who was found guilty of killing Francis Barker was imprisoned. The man appealed his conviction numerous times over the years. With his last attempt in 2013... These appeals were continually unsuccessful, and in July 2014, the man died in prison, age 79. In a side note, as recently as 2018, it was alleged that Angus Sinclair, and now the deceased man who had been convicted of murdering Francis, had teamed up to commit crimes together. 
This assertion was based on both Angus's criminal profile and the compelling evidence supporting the convicted man's involvement. Despite the strong circumstantial similarities between the murders of Christine, Helen, Francis, Hilda, Agnes, and Anna, the lack of forensic evidence led police to determine that, unfortunately, there was insufficient evidence to charge Angus and Claire with the four Glasgow murders. But investigators weren't discouraged when it came to pursuing Angus's involvement in the murder of Helen and Christine. 59-year-old Angus was already serving two life sentences when on November 25, 2004, he was detained in connection with the murders of the two Edinburgh girls in 1977, and mouth swabs were taken from Angus to compare against the existing DNA sample. Listener, as you'll hear in the following audio, in an interview with detectives that lasted several hours, Angus refused to assist police in their inquiries or respond to questioning. During the pauses, you'll hear in the following audio, a silent, defiant, yet perfectly calm Angus sat opposite detectives with his arms crossed. It's essential that we establish your movements in October 1977, especially between Saturday the 15th of October and Sunday the 16th of October 1977. Can you recount where you might have been over that weekend period that I'm speaking about? Are you able to recollect at all where you might have been at that period in October 1977? I take it by that you're, you're not wanting to respond to that question, asking you where you might have been in October 1977. Is that correct? Four months later, on March 31, 2005, Angus Sinclair was formally arrested and charged with the rapes and murders of Christine Eady and Helen Scott. The following day, he appeared in a closed hearing at Edinburgh Sheriff's Court, where he did not enter a plea and was remanded in custody. Part 4 False Start On August 27, 2007, Angus's trial commenced in the High Court of Justiciary in Edinburgh. The 62-year-old pled not guilty to raping and murdering Christine and Helen. The prosecution alleged that on the night of October 15, 1977, Angus and his late brother-in-law Gordon Hamilton drove from Glasgow to the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. The pair parked the van in St. Mary Street short distance from the World's End pub. Like Christine and Helen, the men went on a pub crawl of their own. Only they weren't just looking to enjoy a couple of drinks and the latest music. Their plans were far more sinister. It was alleged that after striking up a conversation with Helen and Christine inside the pub, which continued outside after the foursome left at closing time, the men coerced or forced Christine and Helen into Angus's van. The corps heard that Angus drove to Gosford Bay where he attacked Christine, stripping her and gagging her with her underwear. He then bound her wrists and raped her before murdering her. Angus was accused of then attacking Helen in the same manner, 
driving her to a road near Haddington, where he assaulted her in a field before murdering her. The Corps heard that Angus owned a Toyota Hi-Ace camper van at the time of the murders, that he had since disposed of the vehicle in the late 1990s. This meant that the police were unable to conduct forensic testing of the van's interior or upholstery. Sarah had ended her marriage to Angus around the time of his imprisonment in 1982 for the sex offenses he committed against 11 underage girls. Sarah, who by this time moved to southern England, told the court that early in their marriage, Angus admitted to killing 8-year-old Catherine Rehill 46 years earlier. The court heard that Angus managed to convince his shocked and horrified wife that it was all a terrible mistake. It was also revealed that throughout the marriage, Angus had numerous affairs which were eventually discovered by Sarah. Every time the couple would separate, and every time, a contrite Angus would always promise that each time was the last time. And Sarah had stayed until she could endure no more. Something else that came as a shock to Sarah was learning of Angus's source of additional income throughout their marriage. While the painting work and ice cream business seemed to be supporting the family more than adequately, this wasn't exactly the case. From the 1970s onward, Angus had taken to viciously mugging unsuspecting Glaswegians and taking whatever he could in the process. In conjunction with his brother-in-law, Gordon, at night the pair would break into Glasgow businesses where they'd worked in during the day as part of their painting jobs, stealing whatever they could. Helen's father and Christine's mother both gave evidence about the last time they saw their daughters. The bereaved parents spoke of their ongoing trauma in the intervening years, having to live day to day and year after year without answers as to who is responsible for so cruelly taking their girls away in the most violent of circumstances. When it came to the forensic evidence, a forensic scientist testified that semen obtained from vaginal swabs taken from both Christine and Helen shared the same DNA profile. The court also heard that the semen found on Helen's coat matched the swabs taken from Angus and was mixed with the cells with the same DNA profile as Helen. The chances of the DNA sample matching anyone else other than Angus was described as being a billion to one. But this is where the forensic case against Angus stopped. The rest of the evidence presented by the prosecution would be entirely circumstantial. The prosecution chose not to submit the forensic evidence that showed that Angus's DNA was on the ligatures, nor did they submit the circumstantial evidence that the two different knots were used to tie these together. It was a decision the prosecution would come to regret. When it was time for Angus's legal team to defend the charges against their client, something had to first be taken into consideration that had been lodged with the court before the trial had even commenced. As entitled under Scottish criminal law, Angus had lodged two types of procedural shortcut available to defendants, known as a special defense. The special defenses in Angus's case related to the issues of consent and incrimination. Angus claimed that any sexual contact he had with both Helen and Christine was consensual. He also claimed that he was fishing at the time the girls went missing, and that the person responsible for raping, beating, and murdering the girls was in fact Gordon Hamilton. Conveniently for Angus, his brother-in-law was no longer available to be able to respond to such an accusation. The defense maintained that there was therefore no case for Angus to answer, due to a lack of evidence, and asserted that prosecutors had failed to establish that Angus had acted with force or violence against Christine and Helen. Evidence was presented that Gordon's siblings had provided DNA samplings for comparison against the semen found on Christine and Helen, 
The defense also claimed that the Crown had failed to provide any evidence proving that any sexual contact between Angus and the girls was not consensual. Two weeks into the trial, the judge upheld the submission by the defense that there was insufficient evidence for the prosecution to proceed, and therefore, no case for their client to answer. Angus was formally acquitted. Operation Trinity investigators were dumbfounded, and for the families of Helen and Christine, it was an agonizing blow. The prospect of finally getting justice for their girls had been within such close grasp, only to be cruelly snatched away at the last minute. Even though Angus would head straight back to prison to continue serving his life sentences for serial sex offenses and the murder of Mary Gallagher, as far as Ellen and Christine's families were concerned, justice had not been served, and Angus may as well have been a free man. And there was no possibility of retrial, thanks to the principle of double jeopardy, which was enshrined in Scottish criminal law. Agnes couldn't be tried twice for the same crime. Outside the court, following the acquittal, Helen Scott's father told the media, I am absolutely shattered. Words cannot explain how I feel. Thirty years of trying to get a conclusion. I promised I would stick by this and get justice, which honestly, I don't think I got today. Listener, you heard earlier in our story about Angus's previous convictions for murder and sex offenses. To add insult to injury for the families of Helen and Christine, it was only upon Angus's acquittal that his prior convictions and the full horror of his previous crimes were made known to the public. Following the trial, Angus's wife Sarah spoke to the Herald newspaper of her shock in learning about her husband's sordid past during their marriage. That was a horror to me. I thought that I knew him. I looked at my brothers and other people in my life. They had all made mistakes. We all do when we're young. For Sarah, blood was thicker than water. She was adamant that it was her husband who had led her brother astray, that Gordon would not have murdered Christine and Helen. The Scottish media was scathing in their criticism of the verdict. Members of the Scottish judiciary commented publicly about the case, heavily criticizing the prosecution for failing to present the entirety of the forensic evidence they had on hand such as the DNA recovered in the nuts and the tights that bound the girls' hands together. The fallout from the verdict was so extensive and highly publicized that a review of criminal justice procedures in Scotland was initiated. Two months after the verdict, several issues arising out of the case were referred to the Scottish Law Commission by the Cabinet Secretary for Justice. One of these was to consider whether there should be expectations to the principle of double jeopardy. Two years later, in December 2009, the Law Commission published its reports focusing on the rules of double jeopardy, with the recommendation that exceptions be made in three circumstances. One of these circumstances was that double jeopardy would not apply in instances where new evidence is uncovered that galvanizes a case against an accused person and would have likely resulted in a conviction had it been available at the original trial. Part 5. Comumpets Despite Angus's trial collapsing at court in spectacular fashion in 2007, police continued to maintain the view that he was responsible for the murders of Helen Scott and Christine Eady. 
they were determined not to let him get away with it. As it turned out, changes in the Scottish legislation following the Law Commission review would ensure that Angus wasn't going to get off lightly. In late June 2010, the Scottish Parliament passed the Criminal Justice and Licensing Act. This new legislation provided a mechanism for Crown appeals against rulings made in response to submissions by the defense claiming that there was no case for an accused person to answer. Nine months later, in March 2011, the Scottish Parliament passed the Double Jeopardy Act, and in November that year, the act came into effect. Suspects could now be retried for offenses where new and compelling evidence had emerged. If it was proved that the original trial had been tainted, or in cases where a suspect admitted guilt. In response to these legislative changes in March 2012, the Crown Office issued a statement advising that investigators were to reopen the investigation into the murders of Christine Eady and Helen Scott. Prosecutors were prevented from presenting evidence that failed to be included at the 2007 trial because this didn't meet the threshold for new evidence, so police refocused their efforts on doggedly pursuing recent DNA developments which could be introduced at court. Thanks to technological advances in DNA analysis since the 2007 trial, forensic scientists were able to conduct more sophisticated testing on the ligatures found on Christine and Helen. The results refuted Angus Sinclair's previous claim that he'd had consensual sex with the girls. While touched DNA would reasonably be expected to be left behind in such a situation, on the girls' underwear, for example... The results revealed that Angus had in fact tied the ligatures around the girls' bodies. Traces of his DNA inside the knots confirmed it. The Herald newspaper reported that even though Angus had previously been acquitted, his wife Sarah had been assisting police under a veil of secrecy since 1982. Sarah had already assisted police prior to the 2007 trial, but following the acquittal, she continued to help them in their efforts to gather further evidence against her estranged husband. Under the guidance of investigators, Sarah agreed to write letters to Angus in prison in an attempt to elicit further information about his involvement in Christine and Helen's murders or even a confession. Whether Angus was suspicious of the content of Sarah's letters, we will never know, but he remained staunch and nothing was forthcoming. In October 2013, the court heard an application requesting that Angus Sinclair stand trial for a second time and, six months later, Approval was granted to prosecutors. Angus was set to become the first person in Scotland to be retried for the same crime after an acquittal. This time, the Lord Advocate himself decided to personally prosecute the case. The role of the Lord Advocate is the most senior legal official in the Scottish government, so this sent a strong message that the Crown was determined to achieve justice for Helen, Christine, and their families. Finally, on October 13, 2014, the second trial of 69-year-old Angus Sinclair commenced at the High Court of Justice Sherry. This time around, the proceedings included a visit by the jury to the scene of the murders to gain a full understanding of what transpired the night Helen and Christine were taken to their deaths. To the surprise of many, Angus decided to take the stand in his defense. As recounted in the book The World's End Murders, Angus told the court that he and his late brother-in-law, Gordon Hamilton, escorted the girls out of the pub and had indeed offered them a ride home. Helen and Christine were unsure whether they should accept. Angus told them he would take them where they needed to go, and the group headed off walking in the same direction. Angus testified that he drove Helen and Christine to Hollywood Park, 
where he and Gordon both had consensual sex with the girls. He claimed afterwards he went off fishing in the dead of the chilly night, leaving the teenagers alive and well in the company of Gordon. It was clear to everyone present that this just didn't make sense, with Angus's account now bordering on the preposterous. Under cross-examination, he conceded that he couldn't be sure that either girl had explicitly consented to having sex. In summing up for the prosecution, the Lord Advocate told the court that Helen and Christine had suffered terrifying, horrific, and barbaric deaths, saying, thankfully, justice has no sell-by dates in Scotland. It was only a month after the trial began that the jury of nine women and six men took just over two hours to determine that Angus and his late brother-in-law Gordon had murdered Helen and Christine. The DNA sample Angus had voluntarily provided to police in the mid-1990s, the one that led to his conviction for the murder of Mary Gallagher, was the very same one that led the jury to find him guilty of murdering the Edinburgh girls. Referring to Helen and Christine in his final comments, and speaking directly to Angus, the trial judge said, Whatever dreams they had, they turned into nightmares shortly after they left the World's End pub, the name of which has become synonymous with these notorious murders. Little were they to know that they had the misfortune to be in the company of two men for whom the world's evil and monster seem inadequate. Unless one day your conscience, if you have one, motivates you to tell the truth, no one other than you will ever know precisely what part you and Gordon Hamilton played in these awful events. Perhaps it does not matter. What does matter is that these girls were subjected to an ordeal beyond comprehension and then left like carry-on, exposed for all to see, with no dignity, even in death. For them, at least the nightmare is over, and if they were not resting in peace before today, I hope they are now. The nightmare for their family and friends, on the other hand, has gone on from the first awful moments when they heard the news no one should hear, until even now. 37 years later and counting, it will never end. No one who saw the evidence of Helen's father and Christine's mother could fail to have been moved by it. They are an example to us all, waiting patiently for justice while the authorities have worked tirelessly to achieve it. You have displayed not one ounce of remorse for these terrible deeds. The evidence in this case, as well as your record, details of which have now been revealed, showed that you are a dangerous predator who is capable of sinking to the depths of depravity. I do not intend to waste many words on you. You are well aware that the only sentence I can pass is one of life imprisonment. The judge then recited part of a poem usually reserved for paying tribute to fallen soldiers on Remembrance Sunday. At the conclusion, he again referenced Helen and Christine, saying, While all of their loved ones would have wished to see them live on to a ripe old age, the memories they will have of them will always be of two happy, home-loving innocent girls, unbesmirched by the ravages of time. In what was the longest ever sentence handed down by a Scottish court, Angus Sinclair was sentenced to life imprisonment, the minimum term of 37 years without parole, the same amount of time as it had taken him to face justice. Outside court following the verdict, Helen's brother spoke to the media. He described the 37-year minimum sentence as appropriate, given it had been 37 years and five decades since the murders had occurred. Helen's father also spoke, 
the pain in his voice palpable as he recalled identifying his daughter's body all those years ago. Helen's father said he had promised his lay wife on her deathbed that he would pursue justice for their daughter, saying, I wonder where she would have been today. Would she be married? Would she have children? Would I have grandchildren? They've stolen life from two youngsters who had their whole lives ahead of them. Just on one night, they can just take it away. It's wrong. On March 11, 2019, four and a half years following the second trial, Angus Sinclair died in prison, age 73, after suffering a series of strokes. Listener, you may recall from earlier in today's episode that the judge who sentenced Angus in 2014 recited part of a poem in court in memory of Helen and Christine. The stanza is from a well-known poem by Lawrence Binion, entitled, For the Fallen. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun, and in the morning, we will remember them, lest we forget. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.